following is a production of Government CIO Media. Welcome to Cybercast. I'm Kirsten Todd. And I'm Roger Cressy. We're very pleased today to have Karen Evans. On September 4th, Karen was sworn in as the Assistant Secretary for the Office of Cybersecurity, Energy Security, and Emergency Response. She was confirmed as the Assistant Secretary by the U.S. Senate on Tuesday, August 28th of this year. Before being nominated by President Trump to lead the Department of Energy cybersecurity efforts, she served in the public sector as a top IT official at the Office of Management and Budget, when we're calling it EGOV, under President George W. Bush, in the position that is now known as the federal CIO. She has also previously served as Energy's CIO. Most recently, Karen was the national director of the U.S. Cyber Challenge, a public-private program designed to help address a skills gap in the cybersecurity field. And you know you had tremendous impact in that role, and thank you for your service in that role. You're also the mother of FISMA and so much more, but it's a real pleasure. We've known you a long time, and it's uh, tremendous to have a civil servant like you in cybersecurity back in government and doing what you do best. We're really looking forward to having this conversation because you have a clean slate in many ways. You don't have a legacy position. You don't have precedent. There's no history that precedes you. As you look at this role and why it was created, what are your priorities for this position? What are you looking to achieve and what do you see as the challenges that you have in this role? So as I go forward, first off, it's wonderful to be here and talking to you guys about this because I feel like we've been through so many journeys together. This particular office and the acronym actually is CSER which everybody kind of laughs when you start talking about Caesar. like the Caesar. I was going to say, but maybe very That's appropriate. <laughs> yes, so it's Caesar. The vision and the goals and everything that's laid out for it has been pretty clear from the secretary down through the deputy secretary and the undersecretary. I mean, my job is to achieve their vision, and they have a very clear understanding of the priority and the accountability of what they are responsible for as it relates to the energy sector. So when I talked with the secretary, he said his biggest fear is is that a natural disaster is going to be happening, like Hurricane Michael, and then we're going to have a whole cyber incident happening at the same time, and he wants to be able to discern between the two and know the root cause about what's going on. His concern is is that from a national security perspective that our adversaries would take advantage of something that is happening naturally and then use it to their advantage going forward and then be able to penetrate what's happening within our nation and our critical infrastructure. And he wants to have the capability to know what is happening and to be able to risk manage that across the sector. The challenge of that is 90% of critical infrastructure in the energy sector is owned by private industry. So how do we make that vision a reality, be able to stress what is the national security aspects of that, and then partner with our industry partners, and then leverage our capabilities from the national labs? So let's talk a little bit about one area where you've already gotten underway. And recently, DOE and DHS made an announcement on pipeline security. It was a pipeline security initiative with you and Chris Krebs. And so it got us thinking about the state of interagency cooperation on cybersecurity, particularly from where you now sit. How would you assess that? And then also, what are you looking for from industry now? Because the good news is this is a mature sector. The people who own and operate it, they have their act together because they have dealt with a series of cyber events and incidents for years now. 
So with that as part of the element to factor in, what are you looking for from them now that you're in this position? I would like to highlight first off that we are the sector-specific agency. So by our authorities that we have now through the FAST Act of 2015, it's very clear that cybersecurity as it relates to what the Department of Energy is supposed to do, it is laid out in statute for us. And so when you ask about expectations, there are a lot of expectations all over the board. In the area of pipeline security, that is a great example of how the whole of government should work. So there is a government energy coordinating council. And on that, I'm the co-chair with DHS and Chris Krebs co-chairs that group with me. And we have Department of Transportation, we have DOD. I mean, everybody comes and depending on what part that we're looking at and they actively participate. So on that pipeline initiative, we also have an oil and natural gas subsector coordinating council and it's chaired by industry. And the associations participate in that. And we just had a meeting with them when we announced that. We asked them, would they be willing to participate? So when you ask, what do you expect from industry? Well, we can announce all the initiatives we want, but if industry isn't going to participate with us and help give us the information so that we can really take a look at what is happening and baseline it. And in that particular case, Bob Kowalski, who is leading the National Risk Management Center, laid out what he wanted to do in that area and then get them to agree, okay, we're going to actively participate. One of the biggest things they asked is what's going to be different and how are you going to do this? And so transportation was there to talk specifically about what they saw, how they were going to move forward and what they needed from the industry. And then we talked about what we needed and how we wanted to have that particular part of the energy sector baseline, for lack of a better term, and get the information that we needed because there's a whole host of tools that we've been working with and developing through the labs. And as you add another new data stream, and in this case, it's going to be pipelines, right? And then you have the fuel that's in there and all these other pieces that look simple to everybody else, but there's a lot of issues associated with it. So one of the easiest ones up front with that is a lot of these are above ground, right? And so you're starting to look at it. So a lot of the industry are using drones to be able to do stuff. They want to do maintenance. Well, there's a lot of rules associated with drones. So they're in transportation and FAA is in transportation. So you can see how the value of the government coordinating council works because as you start identifying different issues, then you have to go and get a policy change or get a reg change or do something in order to be able to gather that data. If you use sensors out on things, right, then you have to be able to collect that data in and have the situational awareness. And the Transportation Security Administration, TSA, has a responsibility, right, for the transportation of energy. Yes. Which I think when I learned that a while ago, that was shocking, right, because we think of it as just your airport experience. But from a government management and organization perspective, there's a role there that we don't think through. So to your point about the coordination, how do we do that more effectively? Well, and the TSA administrator has really embraced that because he knows that that's the view of TSA. So he was there specifically to roll out, this is what we want to do. This is how we want to work with you. And we want to make sure that you as industry are on board with us and the effort that we want to try to do here. And of course, they said yes which was awesome. So that's why you saw the press release. So we're now in the process, okay, what's the next steps and how do we outline the work plan? And so Bob is working with transportation on that and TSA. 
One follow-up on the National Risk Management Center, which was the initiative announced by the Department of Homeland Security. They're looking to model effective industry-government collaboration, and we've all been doing this long enough to know that's sort of the holy grail. We continue to look for how to do that more effectively. What do you think energy, as one of the three core sectors that DHS has identified to sort of create the templates, what is it doing well from that perspective, identifying what government can share with industry, what industry can share with government? Because as Roger said earlier, the energy sector is more mature and it is very specific. And when you look at responses, and we'll get into this in a moment, to natural disasters, its responses have been tremendously effective. And that requires government industry collaboration. What do you think the industry is doing well and where government can play a role to continue that? You talk about the National Risk Management Center and three sectors that you're talking about specifically. So that work group actually came from another presidential initiative that suggested, okay, this tri-sector group should work together. So it's energy, telecom, and finance, right? So if you looked at what was going to happen across the nation, what's the first thing you need to have is energy security, then you need to have telecom, and then we need to be able to move money around. So it makes sense that Mm -hmm. that was the recommendation. So that effort has kicked off, and we have our counterparts, and there's co-chairs, and we've started working on that and identifying what are the critical top 10 types of things. What is being discussed from the National Risk Management Center are these functions. And we've all been in this industry for a long time. And I think what you're seeing is is now they're starting to be the stove piping across the 16 or 17 or 18, how many you want to call them, critical infrastructures, right? And how do you get that horizontal information sharing going? And the NKIC is doing it at a tactical level. But if you look at what then I'm supposed to do in the energy sector is make sure information sharing is happening within the energy sector and then be able to bring it up from a tactical perspective. So if it's a response, it's going to the NKIC. Or if we need to really look from a risk management perspective overall and say, here are things that need to be considered from a policy perspective. So if you look specifically at the energy sector, it's possible as we start diving down into things dealing with supply chain risk management and how the OT systems integrate with the IT systems. And we identify that there is a certain type of OT system that may be at a higher risk because we have a project that's dealing with supply chain risk management and looking at the equipment where the national labs are trying to figure out what's the best way to do this. So when you look at that, and then we have the overlay of the nation of how this is working and who has what deployed where, now you can see you have a high-risk area. If this high-risk area of this deployment of this technology for that portion of the energy industry then also has critical things from a national perspective, national security perspective, or from a health perspective. So now I'm going to tie it back to the national cyber strategy, where they outline certain things and those eight functions and pillar one, right, dealing with it and it had critical infrastructure. Now you have situational awareness of what's happening. This becomes a policy decision at this point because do we as a government say, okay, we're going to change out that equipment because the risk is too high? Do we say, oh, we're going to do it through a grant program? Do we go in and say to that industry, we're going to buy stuff and change it out? That's all policy that has to go up at a secretarial level into the White House to make the decision about what is the best way to handle this particular risk because it's too high for us as a nation to deal with. So I think that's a key point because when people talk a lot on the outside about what's the role of government to help industry, 
it's prioritizing where the risk is. And we'll talk about risk in a second. And if there are high-risk issues, high-risk technology vulnerabilities, that's where government intervenes, not in a regulatory way, but to assist industry in solving it. Sometimes industry has the capability and we just get, government gives them a little support. Other times, uh, government has unique capability to provide to industry. And I think sometimes around here we get wrapped around the axle on the how do we assist each other properly. It's on the high-risk areas where, gov- where industry can't do it alone. That's where government can play its greatest role. Well, and the other thing, again, I'm going to go back to what we're doing because you said from uh, an energy-specific area, from the sector-specific, we're we're pretty mature in a lot of the information exchange. And one of the questions that I've been asked a lot in this role is, what is the value of government? What do they bring? Why isn't private industry doing this? There's a lot of capabilities, and we all know there's a lot of capabilities out there. But where the government comes in from a national security perspective is, Our value add is intelligence, the threat intelligence, the other piece associated with that that puts context around a lot of things that are happening that a specific company is not necessarily going to have or a group of companies. And then when you start looking at that, depending on how the utility is in that market, it's going to affect rates, right? And then we have NERC that does standards, and then we have FERC who does regulations. So all of that comes into play when you're looking at things. But from our role, we're looking at it through a lens of here's national security, how much risk are we willing to live with as a country? And then as I get more information from my partnership is, how do I then get information out to them that's actionable? Because we know in reality, everybody's talking about, I need to have security clearances, I need to have security clearance. That's not going to happen at the rate that we need to be able to fix these problems. So I need to be able to give them information out there that's actionable, because say you don't, from a national security perspective, fit in the risk model that we've outlined and we have for the nation. But you're critical to that community, And you have these vulnerabilities. At that point now, it becomes a decision and an investment decision and a risk-based decision for that group and that utility to be able to deal with. And I have to be able to give them enough information and put enough context around it so that they can keep the lights on for their community. And what is the impact of that? And so that's the other thing that industry is really asking for us to be able to give to them. So, you know, I think the other thing, Roger, to your point, we get wrapped around the axle and in the beltway about certain things. But I think what we really need to do, and this is one thing I've learned from my private industry experience, is there's a whole group of people and a whole group of companies that they have to continue their business or they go out of business. And they don't have to know a lot of context. They just want to know, this is what I have, what actions do I need to take? It's like first responders, they're on the front lines. They want to know how to triage it, and then I'll send you the information you need while you're looking at the bigger picture. So again, that's the role that we can play through the ISACs. So we have ISACs in this, and NERC runs the ISACs. You know, the information goes down there, the information can come back, and then how do we then bring it back, make sure that it gets blended in across, and then up to the risk management center so that they have more situational awareness of what's happening down on the ground. So when we are facing natural disasters and we're in the midst of hurricane season, we just had Hurricane Michael come through, we think of FEMA as the government entity to respond. But 
energy is right there. And arguably, to your point, it's about keeping it up and running. It's government and industry in the critical infrastructure sectors that are first responders, and they're the ones who are getting the communities going. What do you think energy is doing well right now from the natural disaster perspective, because this is now part of your portfolio in response? And how do you think we can be more resilient from the critical infrastructure perspective when it comes to responding to natural disasters? So I appreciate the opportunity to answer that because the first week I was there, Hurricane Florence came through. So I <laughs> and, and jumping right in, right yeah, in. just jumped right into that. And so one of the pieces of advice I got was that the team that I have is really good at responding to natural disasters. So stay out of their way and let them do their job. So I had the opportunity to really work with them going through this. Under the National Response Framework, it's really great to see all these things that you worked on years ago to actually see them in operation. So DOE has ESF-12, which is our response area, and it's really mature. And I talked earlier about the Electric Subsector Coordinating Council, the ONGC Subsector Coordinating Council. So they know their roles, and the ESCC is chaired and every member is a CEO of an electric company. And the minute that they start watching the weather, they start activating the response plan. And so our response plan mirrors FEMA's response plan. So our regions are the same as their regions. So when they activate, we're activating right alongside them. And a whole series of conference calls start, information sharing. And the biggest thing that everybody got, which I hope you saw on Florence, was unity of message. So when you see and the information exchange that happens, and this is also the value that DHS brings because they're in all of those areas. So they have FEMA, they have all of the other sectors that are all activated. And so all these calls happen. And when you go over to the National Response Center, they're all there. You can go row by row and all the teams are there. So I went over, like was over there to see everything and to see the team in action. And they're on the calls. So when the CEOs get on these calls, we are the ones who set up the calls for them. There's a lot of work that goes on with it. And as well as the associations then are the executive secretariat of the coordinating council. And then they talk about what the issues are. Here's the weather report. Here's what's going to happen. They pre-positioned 40,000 resources before that even happened. And it was really clear that this was going to be just like it was with Maria, right? The one-two punch. It was going to hover. So you're going to have the hurricane. Then you're going to have the rain. Then you're going to have the flood. So all the lessons learned that happened from the year before were directly applied as they went forward this go-round. And it was safety first. So setting realistic expectations that if there's flooding, you know, you can't go in if the wind is higher than 30 miles an hour. You can't do this stuff. But some of the other things that they learned, and this is what Chris Krebs brought when he was talking about this to the CEOs, is that he said, okay, the telecom guys are saying, can the energy guys like think about what you're doing when you're going through because like you're cutting telephone lines. So then they have to re... So they said, oh yeah, well, we'll just give you the plan of how we're going to go into the areas first. And then the telecom guy said, okay, we'll follow right behind your plan because then we'll know the power's up. So something as simple as that, that sounds like, oh, 
It's a no-brainer. Yeah, it's all communications and coordination and bringing up here are issues. And then that, again, is, okay, here's what DHS was doing to coordinate stuff. And then here's how they were then taking the information and applying it to the sector-specific pieces, which really made it work well. And then, you know, the CEOs are like, okay, we're going to do this. Do you need anything else? And it all went down the line like that, right? And then they go, okay, we don't need any more calls because now we have to respond. And then they went through and they kept giving you reports so that our messages, what the secretary was saying, what the secretary of DHS was saying, all aligned what the governor was saying and what the utility companies were saying, because it was all the right information and it was all being exchanged in the time that they needed it. So what I hear you saying, too, I mean, we were all working in this space for Katrina, right? And so that's sort of the contemporary example of when we experienced this with industry, government, critical infrastructure post 9-11, and there was such a lack of communication and the operating individuals were not at the right levels. And so what you're saying is that there's an organization now where senior executive buy-in, you've got the CEOs right there immediately, you've got the senior people in government, and there are plans and there's communication and there's an integration in these centers that's operating more effectively than it has been. And that's always been the challenge. And, you know, we've talked previously around how do we make sure that the lessons learned are incorporated into the actions. And with cybersecurity, that can be tough. But with the physical security, it sounds like there's a mechanism in place that's doing that much more effectively than we've seen before. Well, and they get it, right? Yeah. And so one of the big questions that I always get asked is how are you going to deal with a cyber incident? Well, there's no sense in reinventing the wheel. Industry gets how to do this. They, especially in our industry and the way that the states are set up. So when you talk about how does this work at the states, so when you look at the FEMA regions that are set up, they're directly integrated into the state's emergency response centers as well. So all those people, so they participate in our SCC meetings as well. So they're there. They have an, everybody has an association. So they have an association. You have an association. Yeah, everybody has an association. So, and, and they're there though. They're at the table. And the key point that you're bringing up, which should be near and dear to your heart, we run the exercises too. So there's a whole nother function in my area that runs exercises. And they come up with the scenarios. They just finished yesterday, Liberty Eclipse. And so what they do, they bring everybody in. They have specific scenarios. This was around oil and natural gas, right? Because all the different authorities, how do you do that? How are you going to respond? How do we reach out? They built the whole scenario around all of that. And then the idea is, is as you see gaps, it should feed into what I need to do from an action plan. And if I need to do certain things from a government perspective, then I need to raise it up and say, okay, here's the things that we need to address before the real disaster happens. There's a lot that is going on. It's really mature and it's an opportunity to take it to the next level. And that's really why the secretary set up this office, because you have these pieces and you have all this research that's going on and everybody recognizes the cyber threat and how it needs to do a response. And then how are we going to do that from an energy perspective and our energy sector specific responsibilities? And so this office is the next evolution of critical infrastructure support. Let's talk a little bit about strategy and then how it relates to the threat right now. 
So the two pillars of the current DOE cybersecurity strategy is today, make sure we're doing better at risk management, strengthen risk management throughout the sector and even within the government's ability on this topic, which I think the administration's done a very good job in highlighting risk as a primary driver for how we address cybersecurity. And then there's the second part of the strategy, which is dealing with tomorrow. So building secure, resilient systems to deploy in the future. Everybody will be behind that. We have a threat environment now that is qualitatively different. As the administration has said, our Russian friends have done some really good strategic reconnaissance. They've come in, they've basically identified, they mapped, they withdrew information. So they're now in a place, if they decide, given whatever event might trigger it, they have a holistic view of the energy sector in a way other potential adversaries might not. How do you address that reality with the threat with the sector right now? Because we think operational technology, industrial control systems, the challenge between IT and OT, and we have, I hate saying sophisticated adversaries usually, but this is a sophisticated adversary. How do we address that from a threat and a strategy perspective? So the other part of my office, we've been talking about the emergency response and the infrastructure response piece. The other part of my office is really the research and development piece related to cybersecurity. And so we just recently released a funding opportunity where we said what the awardees are, that was $28 million. And what that's really looking at is fundamentally changing how the infrastructure is set up. Overall, how do you look at the whole OT environment overall and how do you modernize it for today's environment based on what you're saying? So that that is directly with our labs and industry. So that was the way that those were constructed are pretty revolutionary but pretty basic. And so there's an industry investment as well as a government investment to be able to deal with that. So that's this longer term piece. Also with our national labs, which you know they're some of the smartest people in the world out at the national labs, there are several tools that DOE's been working on. So they have a program called Citrix, for example, which is dealing with supply chain. And what is the best way to do that? And what are the obstacles? They have another one called Coyote that we have out there that is looking at OT and IT and what is the intersection of that. So I got to ask. Are you calling it Wile E. Coyote? No, no. Super genius? No. You should. But when it's done, that's what it'll be. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's okay. Everything comes back to Bugs Bunny for me. Because that's actually really good because when it's done, it should be like that. <laughs> super genius. Yes, it should be like that. Brought to you by Acme. Yeah, but really it's looking at the OTIT piece and then also looking at what is commercially available. And now we're back to... You know, what is the value that government can bring and what is commercially available to detect all these threats? Because we know that they're there, right? And then what is missing in an ICS environment, OT environments, GATA system piece, and how would that look? And the labs are working on that and developing that. And how do you then put sensors out there, for lack of a better term, that can collect that delta. So it's not to replace what all these other companies are doing, but to complement what the other companies are doing, because we have to have a market-based solution. All of this is going to have to be, how do you scale it? How do you implement it? To I'm back to it's 90% of the infrastructure is owned by private industry. So how do you take the piece that needs to stay in government, which is the threat, 
piece layered on top of that. But then how do you scale out a solution that industry can then use and that information then can flow back and forth? And the labs are working on a lot of different pieces. There's the CRISP project that everybody knows that's run. NERC runs at the EEI. SAC uses that. It's out at PNNL. And how do you expand that to multiple other data flows and make that a scalable model so that everybody can use it? And that it doesn't become cost prohibitive from that perspective, because it's something that the nation needs to have. We need to have a piece, but all of industry needs to be able to use that. And then there are other things that we're exploring of what is the best way to put this information out. So we've done some things. They're called ARIES bulletins which we give to the ISACs, and then the ISACs then can distribute it out, and we try to put context in a non-classified way about how you can do certain actions. And then that helps the industry because then they can say, well, this is what DOE is doing, or this is what DOE is recommending. So now we're back into here's the regulatory structure, and here's all these other pieces so that they can go to utility boards and say, this is the reason why we have to do what we have to do. We're not necessarily sure about everything, but this is a risk we're not willing to live with. And so then the local community knows why they're doing it. So real quick, it just goes back to the prior point of there are high risk areas where government and industry need to double down on. And this area that you're talking about right now, building secure systems for tomorrow, this is a race against time. Yes. A clock is running and there are serious consequences if we don't do it. So I don't think the American people really appreciate that there is this challenge right now of building it before we're in a position where we might suffer potentially significant impact. And this is the role of government through the labs working with industry to try and solve it. And if I do it right, then the American people really won't know. And hopefully, yes, if we do this right, when I do this right, they might see some of the local utility type of issues, and then they'll be able to explain it because there'll be enough context around it, right, and about how it impacts my community. So this is back into the private sector partnership that we have to have. They have to keep the lights on. They have to make a profit. They have to do a bunch of different things out there. I didn't have a greater appreciation of that when I was in government the first time, and now after being out for 10 years, I get it, and I understand how to maybe frame it in a way that you can get it through your board to say, okay, here's the risk. And you as the board of directors, are you willing to take this risk? And if they say yes, great. But if they say no, then this is the cost associated with how you have to address that risk. You talked earlier when we were speaking beforehand about how this role is really the evolution of cybersecurity. And so what you're talking about now is this fascinating integration of government intelligence and what it's collecting, industry commitment and execution. And now you bring in the lab. So I did want to ask you about this because you've had experience, obviously, as the DOE CIO earlier. I had the privilege of working at Sandia and Livermore several years ago and recognizing there's a huge capacity here for research and development. And when we look at this, it's how do you get those market-based strategies but they're government-sponsored research and development. How else are you using the labs to further your agenda and what you're doing as you look at this integration? Because they have tremendous capability that I think often has gone untapped for cyber because of the evolution of the threat. So part of what you think about with my office is think about it more in short-term types of deliverables to answer your point, Roger, about like, okay, it's immediate, and then how do we get some of these tactical things in place? If you let the labs 
do what the labs do. They will research and develop forever, okay? And they will continue to, like, come up with the best solutions. What, what I'm talking they to... They are super geniuses. They are super geniuses. And so I'm really looking at a lot of the portfolios and the projects that we have under underway and say... Okay, so how do you break that into a small, actionable item? Because I want to have initial operating capabilities within three months. And to get them to think about, okay, you know how to fix this problem. You're some of the smartest people in the world. Now we have to implement it. We can't be admiring it anymore. We all know that there are certain things, and I will share with you what the secretary shared with me. He said he'd rather have a whole pile of things that didn't work so that when it happens that we can say, okay, here's all the things that we tried. Here's one vector we did not think about. Now, I would find that hard to believe with the knowledge base that's out in the labs that they haven't thought about all these vectors. What I think might be the challenge is how fast can we implement some of the solutions that they're talking about in order to address that. But I'd rather try a bunch of these. That's why it's research and development, right? It's all learning experiences. What's going to work? What's scalable? How do we deploy it? I worked in venture capital. So now listening and talking to those people, you can see like, okay, this is a great science fair project and let's continue to research it, but they don't have a good business model. And when I'm starting to look at some of the things the labs are doing is How do you scale that? What is the business model? Why would a company want to actually take that solution and put it? And what piece do I break out that we need to fund? And what piece should industry continue to fund? And what should they do? And how do I get that out into the commercial sector? For example, we know CrowdStrike's out there. We know IronNet, you know, Palo Alto, FireEye, all those guys. What piece should they evolve their own solutions? And then how do we transfer that intellectual property out there so that the whole country or all of their clients, right, could benefit from what we're doing in the labs? So before we wrap up, last question. You were doing this before it was cool. You know where all the bodies are buried you made in the it government. Cool. You did make it cool. <laughs> and you made a real impact and a difference earlier in your career, and you're going to do it again now. The single biggest thing that has changed from your perspective, from when you were in before to now that you've returned, what is it? And what do you think is the big difference that you're keeping frontal lobe in your head as you go forward? It's been nine years, right, Karen? Yes. Between, yeah. It's yes. just a long time in this <laughs> it's space. A long, it's a long time, time in, in cybersecurity. <laughs> yeah. But I would say that what is different is that leadership all the way up and down the chain. So the secretaries, I mean, Secretary Perry knows what he's responsible for, and he knows what he's being held accountable for by the president. That's what's changed. We talked about that in all the work that you were doing in the commission, and that was the one key thing. Like, everybody is at lower levels redoing things, but the one key thing is the president needed to pick people that understood what their responsibilities were and what they were going to be held accountable for. Accountability. And the accountability piece is huge. And when you look at the, the national strategy, it even says we're going from planning and process to action and accountability. And to me, that's what's really exciting is the action and accountability piece. And so when I went to the exercise yesterday, I told that whole group, hold me accountable. Here are the things that you said that you wanted 
I opened it up to questions, which kind of freaked some people out. But I told them to hold me accountable. If this is what you want, we took notes on some of the things that they were talking about. And I said, we're going to go back. And if I can't deliver something, you're going to know why I can't deliver it. And if I need you because it takes a legislative change, then that's where industry can then go up to their congressman and say, look, we're willing to do this. Here's an impediment in legislation that is keeping us from being able to share things with government or doing our part as it relates to fixing this. And I really believe the other part that's changed is Congress gets it now, too. And they want to do something, and it's not punitive. It's really or gratuitous. It, yes, I mean, it's, it's or after to, the fact, or after it's, the it's fact. Strategic it's, and, it's very strategic. And how can we help industry so that it becomes an incentive, and not how do we regulate them into not wanting to do this, or just punish them when or they've made a mistake? Them. Yes, and so I think you're seeing some of that now. I mean, because. I know in the old days, based on some of these things that are going on, on some of these hearings, there would be a lot of regulations that would have gone out by now. But I think that the nation is really looking at what is the right posture for us based on the technology companies that we have, what our economy is doing, how do we drive this, and what is the right way that we want to manage data, and then how much risk, and we keep coming back to that, how much risk is the nation really willing to live with in a global environment that we rely so heavily on technology and energy? I mean, energy is huge. So how do you do that? And so that's why I'm really excited, because I really do believe this is the next evolution of how we're going to manage critical infrastructure. It is indeed. It's an exciting time. You've got an exciting role, and we're looking forward to hearing and learning about your successes and the impact that you're going to have. We're happy you're in this role. Oh, thank you. I'm going to share one thing with you that scares me. I think about this all the time. I, oh, you burying the lead? You were supposed to start with that. When no, <laughs> no, it's something that I want everybody to just like think about. So I get to brief the secretary a lot. I told you, he's really into this. And he looked at us the other day. We were giving him all this status of where we were on things. And he just said, you're at the tip of the spear for the nation, Karen. And I just, that was the end of the meeting. And so (laughs) you're like, you walk away with that going, oh my gosh. So speaking for myself, I can think of no better person who has the experience and the background and the expertise to be at the tip of the spear in this space at that agency than you. And as a nation, I say this and Roger says, you got to stop saying that. But it is the appreciation and gratitude for you being in that role is tremendous. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. So I'm losing a little sleep over that one. I can (laughs) understand that. It's a motivator. It is a motivator. Yeah. Thank thank you. Thanks for taking your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybercast. You can find Cybercast on Apple Podcasts. We hope you enjoyed the show. 